Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you all for, for coming tonight. This will get raised up for you sooner rather than later, I hope, and you'll be able to see that a little bit better. Uh, what we're going to do tonight for the next uh, 50 minutes or so, give or take, maybe 60, is talk about the second wave, the second age of Judaism. So there was an age, you, many of you probably know, 2,000 years ago. At the end of the Second Temple period, uh, Judaism was the way we described the way, what, we, what we have. Uh, this was a formulation that goes back to uh, Jacob Neusner. There were sects. Right, each competing sects arguing, what, how do we read the text? What does God expect of us? Who's in the in community? Who's in the out community? Who's a good Jew? Who's a bad Jew? Uh, what's our sacred past? What's our destined future? All these sorts of basic questions that denominations answer for us. That was the story, uh, and we all know what happened. The temple was destroyed, uh, and um, uh, most of those sects went away. Either they were killed by the Romans. Or in the case of the Sadducees, for example, their whole interpretation became irrelevant with the destruction of the temple. And only a couple survived, uh, one of them being what we call Jews, rabbinic Judaism. Another one uh, being Christianity, which they're doing okay, I hear. Uh, so, you know, God bless them, that's great. Um, and for a good 1800, 17, if we want to be generous, let's say, let's say the rabbinic Jews took a few centuries to solidify their control for well over a thousand, maybe 1,500 years, we have Judaism. Uh, there might have been disagreements between different, you know, Kabbalists and philosophers and so on, but everyone largely agreed that the Talmudic understanding of halacha was binding, Jewish law, and this is how you have to be Jewish, and this is how you read the text, and, and you know, in terms of halachic implications and so on. Then comes the modern period, and it's gone. We now have a second age of denominations. So what I want to talk about is how that happened and what that might suggest for us today. And I'm going to do so uh, in a lecture that's going to have two parts. First, I'm going to look at how denominations, how and why denominations first emerged in the 19th century. And for reasons we'll understand, we're going to focus on Germany above all. We can have an entirely separate conversation about America, which is a very important one. But for now, we're going to focus on Europe and particularly on Germany above all. Uh, and then we're going to look at sort of the spectrum. In the second part, we'll look at the sort of spectrum of denominations that emerge and what they share in contrast and what that might mean for today. And there'll be a couple of denominations that might surprise you that I, that I put in there. And if you have any questions at any time, I, normally I would have you stop me. I know I'm being uh, recorded or, or displayed, but you know, you're my priority here. You, you came to Phoenix. You're here in the table. So if you have a question, you want just a clarification, please feel free to interrupt. Otherwise, we'll have a Q&A at, uh, at the end. Okay, so uh, we are now moving into the age of religious change. There was religious change before the 19th century, um, but it was haphazard. You have the rise of 
groups like the Port Jews, these sort of Sephardic modernizing Jew, thank you, uh, these sort of Sephardic modernizing Jews uh, who are beginning to pick and choose ritual observances, but with no real coherence. There was no ideology behind it. It wasn't a conscious experience of trying to do something different. But what happens in the 19th century, I think I have a slide on this, what happens in the 19th century is the collapse of the autonomous community. Jews are no longer living in a self-rule, in a kind of a state, a caste, in, in the way they were for all of those centuries of feudal rule. They are now being integrated into a centralizing, nationalist centralizing state. And in some cases, they'll be emancipated immediately. In some cases, like Germany, emancipation will be sort of dangled over their head for many, many decades, teasing them, encouraging them, pushing them. But in all cases, the autonomous community, the power of the rabbis and the secular elite to control the lives of Jews is being taken away in the age of centralizing states. So Jews are now free for the first time really ever in the history of rabbinic Judaism to do other things without worldly consequences, right? Uh, the rabbis and their secular shares of power can't put you in harem. They can't threaten you really in any way. And at the same time, Jews are encountering ideas of the Enlightenment, either directly or through the Jewish Enlightenment called the Haskalah. And they're, so they're encountering new ideas. They're inspired to, to think about new ways of, of, of being Jewish. There's nothing anyone can do to stop it. And there's actually a new world where they sort of have to do that because the old ways of being Jewish simply no longer obtain. They don't exist anymore. So they have to figure out what does it mean to be a Jew now for the first time ever. This is, this is the modern uh, problem or the modern opportunity, the way, however you want to look at it. So that's, that's the story we're looking at. And the biggest questions, you know, what texts are the most important texts? What rituals are expected of us? Who, you know, what is, who is our community? All these sorts of basic questions that we'll, we'll see. And that's why the central question really is that the breakdown of, of that authority. That's, that's what we're really getting at. And we're going to focus on Germany. We're going to see in a, in a bit that Jews are changing all over Western Europe because all Jews are, mo all Jews are modernizing. The impact of, of uh, industrial and economic change, of the modern state, of emancipation is going to affect everyone. But for specific reasons, Germany is going to have more changes uh, than elsewhere. I'll come back to that uh, at, the, at the end. So let's first of all look at the first phase. What first happens uh, in Germany when uh, that begins the process of religious reform or religious change? Um, when the first religious formers in Central Europe start to act, they are uh, dealing with already a divided Jewish community. Urban children of modernizing Jews, the elite, are already picking and choosing, trying to figure out what it means to be Jewish without any ideological organization. Some of you might know that there was sort of a uh, wave of conversions of Jews to Christianity around 1800, give or take, including very famously, if you know who he is, Moses Mendelssohn. Right? Moses Mendelssohn, the great Moschiel, what, the symbol of the Jewish Enlightenment of the 18th century, his children and grandchildren all converted, ultimately. Uh, and the reason for that is because they had no model of being a modern Jew. There was only being a Jew that they understood, and there was being a German, being part of that society. There was no way of bridging that. And the first reformers are trying to figure out a way, what you all take for granted, right? That's, that's not self-evident at all, 
That has to be built. Somebody had to make that. Somebody had to be the one to forge that path. It was already actually this guy. This is David Friedlander, Mendelssohn's disciple. He's already beginning to push, because Mendelssohn himself was against religious change. Moses Mendelssohn, the great enlightened Jew of the 18th century, was opposed to religious change. He said the, the rituals are totally obligatory. If you had to call him something, and it would be totally anachronistic. But if you had to call him something of the, in the 18th century, it'd be some kind of modern orthodox, right? That's essentially rationalism, uh, secular study, learning the language, hyphenated identity, patriotic, but also punctilious in ritual observance, right? Studying all the Jewish texts very religiously and so on. That's Moses Mendelssohn. Not so much his disciple. He was trying to push the envelope, but didn't get very far. But it, it continued to push the second generation, the third generation. They're rejecting the assimilationism. They're rejecting the conversions. They want to do something difficult, something new, but it's difficult to figure out how to do that. The first opportunity comes in the 1800s. Napoleon conquers most of Europe and puts his brother, Jerome, in charge of this new kingdom of Westphalia uh, in, in, Western, in Western Germany. Uh, introduces a, a new kind of organization for the Jews, a consistory, very similar to what they had in France. All the religions are organized in what's called consistoires, these sort of uh, state uh, uh, sort of a state autonomous community, except it's not autonomous, a sort of a state way of organizing the various religious communities and co-opting them into the government. That's the way you could make them, you know, once you pay the salaries of the, of the clergy, you can then force them to uh, promote patriotism, promote, you know, all kinds of things for the army and that, that kind of thing. And he puts in a guy, uh, I think I have a picture of him here, uh, there he is, Israel Jacobson, and he makes him uh, the, in charge of the Jews of, of Westphalia, and he uses his power to build a new kind of Judaism. This is the Sison Temple, which can be called the first Reformed Temple. And if you look at it, it's quite striking. You might notice a lot of things about it. First of all, it looks like a church, right? What he's noticed about it especially? Why do I say it looks like a church besides the construction as a whole? It has a steeple with a, with a, a bell tower, right? That's not a way Jews typically built synagogues. Is there any rule that says you can't do that? Not really. It just wasn't ever done before. This is something that's brand new. And there were other changes as well. Um, I listed some of them here, a German language sermon. The, ger the, the secular language sermon, what a radical idea. A secular language sermon. And not some kind of pilpul, if you know the Hebrew word, meaning it's not, uh, uh, I don't know how to say this in any polite company way, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Woody Allen had a famous line uh, from Annie Hall, which, which he said something, I forget what it was, but he says it's intellectual masturbation. Right? That, that's the way they viewed, I take a text from here, and 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 the purpose of it is to wow you about how smart I am, all these texts that I know, that I can weave into a wondrous whole to show that they're all from one divine source. No, I want an edifying sermon in the secular language, patriotic, that's a central part of the service, as important as the Torah reading, maybe, or maybe even more so. I want decorum, right? None of this cacophony that we might see in a traditional synagogue. I want decorum. I want an organized service. Please rise. Please sit. Please turn to page 222. Uh, I want to ban things like noise-making on Purim. No children under four, right? Are you kidding me? Children in the synagogue? That's outrageous. Uh, and adding music and organ, which might not even be necessarily a halakhic problem, as long as you have a non-Jew playing it, right? Now it's pushing the envelope here, right? You can already imagine the backlash that's coming, which we're going to see, but he's pushing the envelope. And all of these things are introduced 
only based on his power of the state. There was no rabbi who says you can do this. He's not asking a Shiloh here. He's just doing it because this new world enables him to do it. And he would give direct orders to rabbis uh, to, for example, advocate Jewish military conscription. He, you know, he warned them of uh, unfortunate, what was the expression, unpleasant measures of force if they should not comply. Uh, it wasn't like it was so theologically drastic. I mean, these things are not necessarily halachically forbidden, but it was, uh, in terms of a hashkafa, a veltanchang, a worldview, in terms of the use of a political power to put these things through, that's what was new. Uh, they also start producing a journal. This is Sulamit, is the one of the earliest uh, Jewish maskilic journals, first in Hebrew, uh, later in German, that was trying to prepare German Jews for this new kind of identity. The, the author was not a reformer in the, in the sense that you might think of a reformer. He was a maskil. He wants Jews to uh, learn secular subjects, to speak German, uh, to be acculturated and integrated into society, even as they remain religiously Jewish. They also like terms. They don't like Jewish so much. seemed too separatist. They like terms like Israelite uh, or Mosaist. That was a popular one, too. A Jew of the Mosaic Confession. Or, sorry, a German, forgive me, a German of the Mosaic Confession or an Israelite. That seems somehow less separating and more, uh, you're a Protestant, I'm a Mosaic. You're a Protestant or Catholic, I'm an Israelite. It seems somehow a more uh, a subset of, of, a, of a broader German category. Uh, it gets shut down. You might have heard, spoiler alert, Napoleon loses. He's forced out. Sorry, if you didn't, you know, if you didn't know it by now, I, I can't help it. Uh, but when they go, these ideas go back to uh, Berlin, you have a private temple opened in Israel Jacobson's home, and they do the same thing, the shortened service, organ, a German sermon, German prayers. By the way, men and women still separate. Uh, mixed pews doesn't come to Europe for decades and decades and decades. That was, that was a much faster in America than in Europe. But a lot of these big things, Prussia shuts it down. Prussia, Germany, the, the government shuts it down. They don't like anything that smacks of reform and change after Napoleon, that's, that's, that's dangerous. We want to have everything stay the same. They shut it down, so okay. So they, it leaves there and it goes to Hamburg. And then you have the Hamburg Temple in December of 1817. Uh, that government really didn't care so much how the Jews worshiped, as long as the community stayed together. They didn't want to deal with Jews splitting into different communities. As long as there was one community, it was fine. And if you look at the text I gave you, the first text, not the first text, you got, oh wait, hang on. Yes, the first text with the staple in the bottom left corner. The first text, number one, here you have the constitution of the Hamburg Temple, the new Israelite Temple Association. I, you know, it's, it's a remarkable text, uh, and you get a sense of what they're going for here, right? Since public worship has for some time been neglected by so many because of ever-decreasing knowledge of the language in which alone it has now become, uh, con been conducted, and also because of many other shortcomings which have crept in at the same time, the undersigned convinced of the necessity to restore public worship to its deserving dignity and importance, decorum, have joined together to follow the example of several Israelite congregations, especially the one in Berlin. They plan to arrange in the city also for themselves a dignified and well-ordered ritual, according to which the worship service shall be conducted on the Sabbath and Holy Days and other solemn occasions, and which shall be observed in their own temple. And why was it called a temple, by the way? What was the implication of that? Why not a synagogue? Why a temple? Sorry? Not a shul. Definitely not a shul and not a synagogue even, but a temple. And that's for a reason, right? Temple to suggest, what was the temple before then? It was the temple in Jerusalem, right, that you pray for to go back there. And they said, no, no, no. This is our temple. 
We belong here. And if you look at the opening, uh, the address of the first American Reformed Temple, which is in Charleston, South Carolina, they actually said that, uh, the, the preacher, Posnansky, said this outright. This is our Jerusalem right here. They fought for that Jerusalem. Charleston's our Jerusalem. I'm from Charleston now. This is our temple. This is very deliberate. It's a temple, right? That's a, that's a, a right. to this day, I think, you won't see the word temple beyond before movement very, it's certainly not very often. I've never, I've never seen it probably exists somewhere, but temple usually implies reform, not, so there are exceptions. But for the most part, it's uncommon. It tends to be reform, and this is part of the reason because of the implication of it, of localness versus es the eschaton at the end of days. Um, anyway, you should have uh, German sermon, choral singing with an organ, right? And this should apply to all religious customs and acts of daily life, sanctified by the church, meaning the Jewish church, right? We're just, you're the Protestant church, you're the Catholic church, we're the Jewish church, no problem, right? Outstanding amongst these, entrance of the newly born into the covenant of the fathers. There's a new ritual being invented here. It's a lovely ritual. What? Uh, well, but they're not calling it that. You have baptism if you're, you know, you're a Catholic or whatever. This is not baptism. This is, this is a, uh, you know, a, 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 a Enter the newly born of the covenant, whatever that means, right? Uh, children of both sexes will have some kind of a, a religious ceremony, a confirmation ceremony, which again was parallel to, I know the Lutherans have that, I don't know if Catholics have that, Lutherans definitely have it. And there'll be confirmance in the Mosaic religion, right? Maybe they'll even get a catechism, you know? I mean, really. So this is the, this is the temple here. Uh, and you can see the pictures of it. It's absolutely marvelous. It fits into the landscape of the place. And inside, men and women separate, but decorum, you know, it's kind of a bourgeois sensibility. That's part of the point of these new synagogues, right? Jews are just beginning now to break into the middle class. In 50 years, they'll be almost all middle class or upper middle class. And part of the point was to show that in their public buildings. That was part of the point. They have some radical reforms going on here. The prayer book shockingly goes from left to right. Brace yourself. Uh, some prayers in the vernacular, organ and a choir, a very long German language sermon and so on, doing away with prayers for the Messiah. That goes with temple, right? We're not praying for the Messiah. Doing away with prayers that too much emphasize national particularity of the Jews, right? They're experimenting here. Uh, the Elena, for example. Elena was totally deleted from the prayer book, for example. Still isolated, not yet an ideology. This one got people's attention. If you look at your packet, I gave you another text uh, the Hamburg Rabbinical Court. These are the words of the covenant. Um, this is 1819. People heard about this one, right? This one got people's attention, and rabbis begin to organize against it. And that's, in a sense, the beginning of orthodoxy, right? Railing the forces. And if you read the text, I only gave you a piece of it, but if you read the text, you start seeing them saying, you know, if you look at number two, for example, or number three, it's prohibited to play a musical instrument even when played by non-Jew. Prohibited to pray in any language but the holy tongue. It's not so clear, right? But we see the beginning of orthodoxy saying things are prohibited even if it didn't used to be prohibited. But because it's now the slippery slope, because it's now giving in to modernity in a way which we are, with which we are uncomfortable, now it's forbidden. So we see here the beginning of orthodoxy uh, congealing. And I, I really can't emphasize enough that orthodoxy as much as reform, is modern. It is not the same as pre-modern Judaism. Pre-modern Judaism, it was dying then and it is totally gone now. Every denomination we're going to explore are going to be attempts to recapture that. They're going to make arguments that they are the most authentic
continuation of the most authentic capturing of what once was. And not just the Orthodox, not just the ultra-Orthodox, Reform and Conservative and others that we'll see do it too, uh, but none of them are actually doing it. I mean, maybe, maybe, presumably, each person will pick the one that they think gets, gets, the best, gets it best, but they're all making that argument, and none of them are exactly doing it. They're all modern. They're all innovating. They're all volunteer identities, because Jews are volunteering to stay Jews. It's no longer necessary in the modern world to do that, and it was necessary in the pre-modern world. Okay, uh, and by the way, there are two possible orthodox responses to this, right? And these we'll, we'll see when we look at the spectrum of options. One of them is an anti-modern backlash that says, uh, you know, anything, to, to quote something we'll quote later on, anything new is forbidden. It's all forbidden. Anything new. We have to put up a wall, culturally a wall, against any kind of encroachment um, uh, to, from, from the modern world. And another approach might be, no, we should modern, uh, modernize. We actually are commanded to modernize in terms of education, in terms of integration, in terms of even acculturation uh, towards language and dress and, and all these sorts of things. But we also maintain a punctiliousness of religious observance, right? These are two different options, both being forged. When I say forged, I don't mean uh, uh, faked or falsified. I mean forged like steel is being forged, right? Both being built, being, being constructed. Um, okay, that's part one. I'm going to skip uh, this. I'm going to go through, I'm going to summarize part two of religious change because I want to get to the spectrum in a second. But essentially, in the 1820s and 30s, um, not much happens, but a new generation of reformers are being raised in some, in some uh, new kinds of schools. And in the 1840s and 50s, they are going to come of age, and they're going to, they're going to build the infrastructure of modern Judaism, especially the three main movements with which you're familiar, reform, what we now call conservative, and orthodox, are going to be built now in Germany especially during the 40s and 50s in terms of the seminaries, in terms of fleshing out the ideologies. All of these things are going to be happening. They have a bunch of, um, uh, of, uh, of um, sorry, uh, sort of synods of rabbis coming together, uh, experimenting with new ideas. You can see some of the key dates here. And by the 1850s, by the 1850s, uh, things begin to stabilize. Um, Germany unifies, let's call the date at this point. Germany unifies, if you recall your history, in 1870, right? Around the time of the Franco-Prussian War. At that point, Jewish emancipation is complete. Jews are finally emancipated in Germany, the la one of the last countries, the last major country of Western Europe to emancipate its Jews. England had already done it. France, of course, did it with the revolution. Other countries had already done it. Germany finally emancipates the Jews. At that point, things had stabilized. Maybe 80% 80% of German Jewry was reform. Initially, reform had come from the provinces, but then, if you think about it, who are the ones most likely to urbanize during this era of industrial change and economic transformation? It's the least observant, right? Or the least traditionally observant. They're the ones who are more likely to go to the big cities. Reform basically, with a couple of important exceptions, uh, conquers the big cities, and the Orthodox consolidate in certain places. Frankfurt, most famously, with Samson Raphael Hirsch, but other places as well. Orthodox represent maybe 20%, 20% of Germany in 1870, 80% reform in Germany. We're going to see at the end of the lecture that 
uh, other countries are, are, are different. Reform does not take hold pretty much anywhere else in Europe, only in Germany. When I say reform, I don't mean change, because Orthodox has changed. I mean specifically the reform movement. That really is something that's unique to Germany and, of course, later to America. Um, that's my quick review of the next history, because I don't have time to do everything, and I want to look at the spectrum of options. Are there any questions until now that I can answer? Yes, sir. Orthodoxy started in the 1500s. At least Hasidim, Hasidism Hasidim, um, started in the 1500s. Wasn't that Orthodox or was that something other than Orthodox? That's a great question. Um, the Hasidic movement is much later, actually. The Hasidic movement, um, it's, uh, seven, it begins really in the sort of the 60s, 1760s, 70s, and 80s, end of the 18, 18th century, and really gets going in the 19th century. So it's actually quite modern. So um, uh, the Hasidic movement's later. Uh, and in Eastern Europe, of course, never makes it to Western Europe. But orthodoxy is not that. Orthodoxy uh, is a voluntaristic approach to text which tries to take, as all movements do, a pre-modern life that is not reflective, not voluntaristic, um, and has a different relationship with the text and traditions and apply it to the modern world. And that's going to lead to different types of of psak, of different types of rulings on halakhic issues. But not only that, it's, you can't really compare somebody in 1850 choosing to keep Shabbat in a certain way, putting aside the stringencies and so on, but choosing to do so, knowing full well that there would be zero consequences if he chose not to do that, versus somebody in 1700 who, that's just the way you lived. It wasn't even a choice, really, right? Jews, the Jews are living under an autonomous community. The mindset is totally different. That's Weren't they Orthodox in the 1700s? No, they, they, were, they were traditional Jews. Orthodox are traditionalist, not traditional. And, you, and it, it appears in other ways, too. You can, I mean, if you think about it this way, and again, it's a spectrum, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify a little bit. If you think about those two basic paths of orthodoxy I suggested to you, the, 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 the neo-orthodox, we later call modern orthodox, who are integrated, learning secular subjects, uh, have a local national identity, uh, uh, prefer rational Judaism to the Kabbalah, uh, and, 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 right? Have a, lots of things I can say about it. That's all totally modern, right? But also the ultra, what we later call ultra-Orthodox that says anti-modern. That's also to be anti-modern. In other words, to put up a, a cultural wall and uh, start taking texts that never had halakhic significance and saying that means we can't do things that we could always do. That also is modern. And it's all part of this attempt to say how do we do this thing in, the, in a volunteeristic world? How do we militantly defend this way of life? And there are other problems. I was going to mention them later, but I'll mention one now as a teaser. What do you do if you're, you know, traditional, in 1700, when you have a deviant, when you have a deep, somebody who is, I'll give you a basic category of Jewish law, mechalal Shabbos b'fahesia, who breaks brazenly, shockingly, breaks Shabbos publicly. He's a deviant. There are consequences. You put him in cherem and it, lots of things about it, right? What do you do when you're the deviant? Everyone's breaking Shabbos, and you're the deviant for not breaking Shabbos publicly. You, the, the texts don't know what to the, the rabbis didn't anticipate this. You have to figure this out, right? So there's lots of questions that have to be worked out in the 19th century. So and it's a very common idea it's funny because both the Orthodox and many non-Orthodox have this idea that the Orthodox are just continuing what came before. 
You'd think the non-Orthodox would, would disagree with that, but often they don't because that's the way we think. But, oh, they're religious, they're religious. But they're religious in different ways, just like conservative and reform are religious in very different ways. that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's brand new to me because I always thought Orthodoxy existed throughout you know, the Middle Ages. And, you know, I, thought something, I thought something happened in the mid 1500s. What happened in the 1500s that you might be thinking uh, the printing press happened and that had lots of effects. One of them was the impact of Kabbalah became transformative and one of, another one was the Shochan Aruch got published, the Code of Jewish Law. And in some ways, one of the things that defines orthodoxy might be that they hold the Code of Jewish Law to still be binding in some sense. And that works to an extent, but the problem is that too needs to be interpreted. And how do you interpret it? Uh, but to an extent, I think you're on to something. There is something important that's going on there for sure. The printing press, it's hard to exaggerate, not just for Jews, but for the world, the impact of that. Uh, Rabbi, you had a question. Yeah, so, so, um, so in, this, in this period of the emergence of these movements, to what extent do they still view themselves as one people? Um, and maybe you could give, give an example of the most intense conflict that sort of indicates that they don't. And is there any actual engagement that sort of says we totally disagree? It's obviously pre-pluralism, but is there any sense that we're still part of this, you know, cloudy Um, Those are great questions. Can I put it on the hold and let's look at the denominations and some of them will begin to answer and then I'll come back to the question again. Would that be all right? Sure. I appreciate it. So let's, it's already 7.35 and I know, uh, uh, you know, comes to think of it, there's nothing of importance happening right now that we care about. <laughs> Isn't that right? I think we can all agree on that. I think we can all agree on that. There's nothing of importance happening right now. So let's continue and enjoy our journey. Uh, <laughs> you know, years from now, this will be listened to on a podcast or something, and they'll have no idea what we're laughing about. Okay. Um, right. Uh, yeah, part, part of the point, yeah, that's not so important. I'll leave, I'll leave that for now. All right, let's take a look at the, at the spectrum of changes. So let's begin by explaining something that's brand new of the early 1800s, which is known in German as Wissenschaft des Judentums, which means the science of Judaism. Essentially, a bunch of kids, I mean kids, like they were young, college kids, right? Were learning critical thinking skills, you know, scientific method. They're learning to read texts critically and not assuming anything about the texts. You know, it's trying to figure out who wrote this and why they wrote it and read between the lines and analyze the text the way you all and I learned in college, right? And I teach it now in college. And they thought, why are we privileging Jewish stuff? Why? Why don't we read the Talmud that way? Why don't we read the Bible that way? Why don't we read Judaism that way? Let's apply the critical method to Jewish texts and Jewish traditions. They're not sacred, necessarily. You know, I mean, they basically, to, to be oversimplified but to be cute, they discovered Spinoza a little bit, right? Finally, finally, the world caught up to Spinoza two centuries later. They finally caught up with Spinoza, right? Fine. And that's the new religion of the 19th century, isn't it? Science. That's the new religion to a certain extent, isn't it? So I think one way, this is one of the leaders of that movement, Leopold Zanz, a very important German-Jewish thinker. And I think one way we can think about the kind of spectrum of ideas I'm going to show you now is the extent to which they're willing to go along with this. The extent to which they're willing to say, okay, we're not going to privilege any Jewish whatever, we're going to look at everything critically. Everything critically. All right. So we start with reform. This is Abraham Geiger, one of the most important, uh, if not the most important, of the sort of second generation uh, reformers, 1810 to 1874, so mid-19th century. Basic idea, everything, everything 
is subject to science. The oral tradition, meaning the Talmud and post-Talmudic writings, and the Bible. Everything is subject to science. Nothing has an untouchable authority. Judaism, he says, is not static. It changes. It doesn't mean you have to throw everything out. It's relative. If you find a ritual you know, elevating, edifying, beneficial, retain it. Uh, he was particularly against circumcision. He felt that was barbaric, for example. But if you like something, enjoy it, and, and what have you. Uh, biblical Judaism is not current Judaism. He's right about that. But he then said, Talmudic Judaism need not be, or post-Talmudic Judaism, right, need not be, Shulchan Aruch Judaism need not be Judaism as well. It's moving, it's evolving towards a pure form. That a, a Judaism's essence can be extracted in some sense. And I have a couple texts, not from him, but from that movement that highlight what I'm talking about. So let's take a look, if you would. Uh, for example, I'll give you just two texts here that are quite good. One of them is text number six. The Reform Rabbinical Conference at Brunswick. This is the minutes of one of those sort of synods, one of those rabbinical conferences I mentioned in the 1840s, where they talk about, and this raises the question the rabbi asked, though he's stepping out now to do something very important, I'm sure. Uh, They asked the question, differentiating between love of the fatherland, the question is, and here here they they raise the question from uh, back history, Napoleon Bonaparte. Question French-Jewish patriotism, sincerity of their being French, and so on, and poses a bunch of questions to a bunch of Jewish elites. One of them was, do you view Frenchmen as your brethren or as strangers? And they answered, no, no, French non-Jews are our brethren, right? What do we think here? They're asking here, is it the same thing? Holdheim says the following. He traces the commandment of recognition and love of fellow countrymen back to the Pentateuch, the Chumash, where the love of the Israelite, for the Israelite, wasn't, did not refer to their common religion, but their common peoplehood. What was once a commandment for the Israelite with regard to his fellow Israelite must also oblige us with regard to our contemporary compatriots, to the Germans. The doctrine of Judaism is thus, first your compatriots, then your co-religionists, right? Now this is new. This is new. This is a new kind of identity. Um, Later on in Jewish history, when we see a group like the Alliance Israelite Universelle, the French Jewish organization founded to establish, to help Jews all over the world, to establish schools across North Africa and the Middle East and the Balkans to help Sephardic Jews and other Mizrahi Jews uh, modernize and get jobs and so on, that's not a surprise that comes from Paris, right? It's not going to come from Germany, not from this attitude, right? It doesn't mean that they... There's a, you know, when the East European Jews start moving west, uh, one of my teachers called it brothers and strangers. Like they recognize they're brothers, but they're also kind of strangers, right? There's an ambiguous relationship. And you can see that here. Or if you wouldn't mind turning to, to, uh, a page over to number eight, to text eight, you have the next year. They're talking about messianism, right? Talking about messianism. Do we believe in the Messiah? What, what do we believe about the Messiah? What do we believe exactly? Because traditionally, think about orthodoxy, right? Traditionally, we are in exile. Our life is terrible. We're suffering. You want to get out of it? Uh, pray harder. Do more mitzvot. Study more. You know, God will eventually say, you're in exile. 
You're in ex that's your identity. You're just spinning your wheels, right, in exile. What do you do when you have emancipation? Now you, am I in exile in Charleston, in, in Phoenix? Am I in, exi am I in exile in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, right? Am I in exile? Am I in exile in London, whatever? That's a real, that's, that's, that's a toughie. It's a difficult one, right? So here's what, here's what they say here. And there are many answers to this question, and that's part of my point, is I'm not suggesting one is necessarily right or wrong or more convincing, but there are answers to this question. Here's what Einhorn came up with. Famous, famous, famous uh, reformer rabbi. The concept of the Messiah is closely linked to the entire ceremonial law. The believer in the Talmud, you all see what I'm reading on the right-hand side there? The right-hand side of text 8. I, I put a little line there to draw your attention to it. The believer in the Talmud finds his salvation only in the reconstruction of the state, the return of the people, the resumption of sacrifices, right? That's the Messiah. Please come, rebuild the temple. We have, I, got, I got my goat waiting for you. I've done some terrible things. Here lies the cause for all of our lamentations over the destruction of the temple and all of our yearnings for the ruins of the altar. Ardent belief and unshakable courage were expressed in these hopes, uttered forth in the dark caves of our miserable streets. But now... Our concepts have changed. There is no need anymore for an extended ceremonial law. The earlier approach restricted divine guidance to the land of Israel and the people. The deity, it was believed, enjoyed bloody sacrifices and priests were needed for penance. With increasing zeal, the prophets spoke up against this restricted uh, view. Everyone knows the passage, and I'm sure you all know it. Right? It hath been told thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee, only to do justly, only to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Micah 6.8. It does say that. It's a proof text. It does say that. What does God want of you? Only to do that. Now, did Micah mean... That's literally all that God needs of you and forget about the sacrifices at the time, what we would call rituals? I mean, probably not. Probably he meant that if you kick a widow and an orphan in the gut and spit on them on your way to the temple with your goat, God doesn't want your goat, right? You're missing the point here. They were preaching ethical monotheism. But it does say that. So if you pull it out of its context and you say, that's my proof text. God doesn't really care about... The rituals were nice. They used to have sacrifices, fine. Then for a thousand years, they had the Talmud and all those laws, fine. Now in the 19th century, we're emancipated, we're mentioned, right? Now we have to get the pure essence here. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. To do good. To love kindness and justice. That's, that's what it comes down to, right? Once the decline of Israel's political independence was deplored, but in reality it was not a misfortune. It was progress, right? Not a degradation, but an elevation of our religion through which Israel has come close to fulfilling its vocation, right? Only the, the last line, only the Talmud moves in circles. We favor progress. Classic Reformed text. Every denomination is going to have proof, excuse me, proof texts. Every one of them. Things they pull out you know, Jews have been writing books for a long time. We get a lot of books. Come to my house sometime. I got thousands of them, right? A lot of books, a lot of holy books, a lot of canonized books, even. Which ones are the most important ones? 
and which sections of those ones, and which interpretations of those sections, and which are the ones that aren't so important, right? That's the key. That's the key to all of this. All right, that's reform. Now we have positive historical Judaism. Today we'd call this conservative Judaism. That, that term was decades, a century away, but today we call it conservative Judaism. The idea is to use the idea of history to preserve integrity. The positive was the faith, right? We say, we, and, and for him, uh, that's above uh, scrutiny to a certain extent, to a certain extent. The historical element is what separates him from the orthodox. The, to put it bluntly, the written Torah was outside science, but the oral Torah, it's oral, right? It's in human hands. It's being shaped by our conversations and learning. So that we have to study, and that will determine how things evolve. We're in a conservative synagogue now, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Right, that's the idea. And you know, I know it, he wasn't thinking about this clearly, but I think the best example of this is the, the series of resolutions that came out about 10 years ago on homosexual marriage. Did any of you happen to read those responsa? Yes. Very interesting, right? I read them. And what was interesting about them was we have, on the one hand, this modern idea, uh, which is, I think, dominant in the world, certainly in young conservative Jews, that uh, gay men are not choosing to be gay, and that they have a right to have love and a loving relationship. On the other hand, we have traditions, we have texts that have to be, you can't just, if you're a reform, you could, it's much easier to throw those out. But not if you're conservative. So what do they do? At least the dominant, they're, they're, as you know, there are several different uh, views, which is very typical. I was raised in the conservative movement, so I have certain, you know, something in my heart for them. Uh, but they said, well, it says you shall not lie, a man shall not lie with a man like a woman, right? What does that mean? Well, that means sodomy. That means sodomy. It doesn't say man can't have a loving relationship with a man. It doesn't say man can't even do other physical things with a man. It says sodomy. So our ruling, this was the dominant ruling, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was the dominant ruling, was this you cannot get around. This is written Torah, right? This is not subject to scientific, biblical criticism. Biblical criticism is, the, is trying to piece together what authors wrote, which pieces of the Bible, when, before they were redacted into a single book, right? No, this is from God. So we can't get around that. But the oral Torah, yes, the Shulchan Orach would forbid this, but we don't care because we have a living tradition and we, can and we can adapt, as long as we don't just throw it away. That's so typically conservative. I mean, it's like I can hear my teachers from Salman Schechter speaking in my ears when I was reading this. It's so typically conservative. And I think that's reflecting something going on here. We're running out of time, so I won't read it, but there is a couple texts that reflect this view. I feel bad, which is conservative synagogue. I should have spent more time in Frankel. Uh, Frankel is your forefather. He is the one you want to be reading if you want to know conservative Judaism. There are a couple texts in here on him. One of them is where he coins the term positive historical. Uh, that was text number um, uh, seven, I guess, the Reform Rabbinical Conference at Frankfurt about Hebrew. Hebrew was this thing. When the Reform threw out Hebrew, that was going too far. You don't touch Hebrew. You don't mess with Hebrew. Uh, but the real explanation actually uh, is a little bit later in the packet. Um, it's an order of denominations. Zacharias Frankel on changes in Judaism. On changes in Judaism. And the part that I highlighted, uh, on changes in Judaism, the part that I highlighted here is where he says, you got the Orthodox on one side and the Reform on the other and the perfect me in the middle. Everyone's always that way. Have you noticed that? That every denomination is like, you know, I'm the moderate middle. This is the crazies over here and the crazies over here, but I'm the moderate middle. So the conservative make that, that case as well. I won't read the text, but you have them in front of you if you want to look at them yourself because it's, so, it's already so late. Uh, third of all, we have neo-Orthodox. 
What we maybe would, you know, the phrase that was born only in the last few decades is modern orthodox. So the term then was neo-orthodox. Uh, nothing is subject to science. It's above science. The Talmud, the Bible, this is from God. Uh, but, but science is a wonderful thing. Studying is a wonderful thing. Languages. He was a mosque, a proud mosque. He dressed, as you can see, like other clergy. So did the other, one of the other founders of modern, of neo-orthodoxy, uh, Rabbi Adler, who founded the United Synagogue in England, who founded the chief rabbinate to be parallel to the Archbishop of Canterbury. They called him the right reverend. The right reverend, and not, not Hirsch, Adler in England, right? Um, advocating patriotism, advocating decorum, advocating university education, the doctor rabbi, advocating uh, acculturate linguistic and, 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 and dress, fashion acculturation, all of those things, right? But observing the, the, observing the rituals in a more rigid way. And that's the text that I gave you here. He says if there was a conflict between, you know, um, uh, integration and, and, and science, and progress and Judaism, I'd pick Judaism, but luckily there is no such conflict. The Torah mandates me to do all these things, right? Now he has a problem. He's got a problem. What do you do, and this is why I was mentioned earlier, what do you do when everyone's a deviant? What do you do? I have two choices. I'm orthodox, I'm, he's now, they call him, the how orthodox became the term is a whole interesting history, but they accepted it. They accepted the term. I'm orthodox. I'm a good Jew, so he says. Uh, you two are also, the 80% of you, you're, you're not. So I have two choices. I have two choices. And this is, there was a conflict between Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi Etlinger, uh, the two main spokespeople here. On the one hand, I could respect you. I could respect you that you're educated and knowledgeable, autonomous Jews, and you've chosen this erroneous path. In which case, I'm compelled to uh, ostracize you as, you know, you're heretics, right? You're in cherem. Uh, I can't count you in a minion. I can't uh, marry you. I can't, uh, all of these things, right? You guys are out. Or, this is the approach of Rabbi Etlinger, I could say, well, maybe the first generation, but all of the subsequent generations, they don't know any better. This is what they learned. They're like Tinek Shanishbon. They're like a baby captured by barbarians. They don't know the left hand from the right. How can I call them a heretic? They just don't know what they're doing. On the one hand, I no longer have to ostracize you, right? Uh, on the other hand, it's not so nice. <laughs> it's not so nice, right? Um, the, 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 a great book came out about this problem by one of the leading scholars of orthodoxy uh, called Exclusion and Hierarchy. And the idea was, uh, there was one aspect was exclusion, but the real, the dominant model that came through was hierarchy. Yes, you're Jews, but we Orthodox, they would say, you know, hierarchy. Right? There's, there's Jews. What, what was the line from Animal Farm? Uh, all, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> so that's the answer to the rabbi's question to a certain extent. Uh, rabbi Hirsch desperately wants to separate from the rest of the Jews. And, he's, and because Jews are legally required to be in a, in a single Jewish community, which controlled assets like the hospital and the orphanage and the synagogues and things like that. He desperately, he kept petitioning the government, uh, Bismarck and so on, to let them have a separate Jewish... He says, we're more different from the Reformed than Protestants from Catholics. And, and he was unsuccessful. Finally, 1876, he was successful. The Aust he was able to create an Austritzgemeinde, a, a, a community that, that pulled out. Once that happened, the Reform came up to him and said, okay, tell you, what do you need? What do you need? Like, we don't want to lose... The, the resources are too thin to spread out like this. 
And his compatriots, like Rabbi Hildesheim and others, said, okay, let's have a conversation here, right? We need to make sure that the food is kosher in the, in the hospital and the orphanage. We need to have control over the rights of the dead body. They, they have a list. And they came to an understanding. And Hirsch said, no. Their, their view, in other words, it was all a threat to get to that point. We want to have one community. Hirsch said, no, we don't. You're not Jews. I mean, you are, but you're not, right? So I don't want to have a community with you. And he pulled out. And that was it. He separated. They eventually moved to, that's the Breuer's community. His son-in-law was Breuer's, in, if you know New York, in the Upper West Side of New York, right? That's Breuer's, coming from that, from that, from that tradition. Okay. Lastly, we have the ultra-Orthodox. Not lastly, second to lastly. We have the ultra-Orthodox. Their idea was, we call them ultra-Orthodox, uh, but basically the idea was, um, no, we're, we're gonna, you guys are all bad. Um, and he came up with his own proof. Everyone's got proof text, man. Everyone's got proof text. So theirs was the following. There was a Talmudic discussion that says the following. All new wheat, all new wheat is forbidden by the Torah until Passover. The context is when you're harvesting wheat, you can't eat it until you bring some uh, Passover time, part of the Omer offering. Then you can have the wheat. You can, it's called old wheat. If you go to a kosher bakery, It'll sometimes say yashan, old. doesn't mean it's moldy. It means that it was from before Passover, right? And there's reasons why some people hold by that stringency today. But he said, is, now the word wheat isn't actually in, in the Talmud. It just, you know, the Talmud's written very tersely. You wouldn't think so. It's, you know, it takes seven and a half years to go through it, even at a quick speed. But it's written very tersely. And um, it says all new was forbidden by the Torah. The context is clearly wheat and clearly in the days of the temple. But uh, he says, I don't know, man. I mean, it's, <laughs> it says new is forbidden by the Torah. New is forbidden by the Torah. And you read the text here. You know, I'll give you an example. Um, just look at the, this, the very last text. Do they copy it? Oh, maybe they didn't. Oh, here it is. The second to last text. Akiba Yosef Schlesinger, right? Um, it's all forbidden. You, if your name is uh, Shlomi, you can't go by Sigmund, right? If it's uh, whatever, you, need, you keep your names. You got to speak Yiddish like Moses did, obviously. We know Moses, we see the Torah in Yiddish, that's clear. Um, you can't learn secular subjects. You, all modern culture, modernity is forbidden by the Torah. Now the irony, of course, is that if modernity is forbidden by the Torah, anti-modernity, I'm sorry, if modernity is forbidden, uh, anti-modernity is a form of modernity, right? That position is new, uh, but th that, that irony was lost on him. Uh, and one of the ways they do that, there's a famous proof text. There's a midrash. You know, a midrash, midrash, it's nice. It's the, uh, the, 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 the spirit behind the, 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 the skeleton of halacha, you have the spirit of the midrash that makes it meaningful and so on. And there's a tradition. Judaism has a lot of traditions. And it has a tradition of traditions. Like, which are the ones that actually affect the way we live our lives, and which are the nice ones, or not so nice ones? So there's a midrash that says, by what merit were the Jews redeemed from Egypt? You ever heard this one? By what merit? And the midrash says, there's different versions of it, but the basic midrash says, because they didn't change their names, they didn't change their clothes, and they didn't change their language. And what the midrash is saying is they didn't acculturate. Okay, there you have it. You are forbidden to change your names, your language, or your fashion, because it was in that merit the Jews were redeemed last time. You're forbidden to do those things. You have to put up a wall against modernity. And he says it right here, right? So when he's talking about, this is Akiva Yosef Schlesinger quoting the Chassim Sofer, 
He says, Sofer does not refer to the fan. When, oh, so, uh, sorry. Commenting on Khatam Sofer's words, be heedful of changing your name and your language. Sofer does not refer to the family name, but to the first name, i.e., e.g., if his first name is Aaron, Aharon, he should not be called Adolf. And by the way, uh, Adolf used to be a very popular name. I don't know, no one's used it the last 75 years or so. <laughs> Seems to have gone by the way. Maybe it's, these things come in cycles. Uh, but it used to be a, many, I, my book on Zionism from before the war, many Zionists were called Adolf. It was a very popular name. Uh, not, not so much anymore. But anyway, if your name is Aaron, you can't be called Adolf. Uh, our ancestors were redeemed from Egypt for four reasons. There's a different version of it. One was because they did not change their names. Another was because they didn't change their language. Uh, you can't follow in the ways of the Gentiles. That's it, right? It's forbidden. In the bottom right corner, Look what he writes here. This is, again, answering the rabbi's question about community. You see the reform is real heresy and apostasy. Apostasy, which may come to realization. Um, sorry. Where's, I'm lost. This is out of, out of sync. 14. Is it by establishing? Is that the next text? Yeah, it is. By establishing a seminary, God forbid. Investigate the condition of our brothers, the Jews in Germany, etc. Amalek. You guys know who Amalek is? Yeah. Okay, right? The Amalek, the symbol of, of pure evil in Judaism, the symbol of the ultimate enemies of the Jewish people. There is an ultimate commandment to wipe them out from the earth, right? Amalek did not cause as much harm to the Jews as the harm intentionally done by the evil family the reformers. May God save us from their hands and avenge the blood of his servants before our eyes. Yeah, not, not, yeah, subtlety, subtlety, subtlety. Now, I do want to point out, I'm going to skip this because time is really out here, uh, a couple things. First of all, this split of communities doesn't happen anywhere else in Western Europe. Uh, in, in France, England, Italy, uh, Austria, and other places, uh, basically, Jews become neo-Orthodox. Neo-Orthodoxy is what the United Synagogue was in England uh, and in France and elsewhere. This model of acculturated, integrated, patriotic orthodoxy, right? That becomes the model all over Western Europe. But there's something else I want to point out about Western Europe. This is, this is the only synagogue from before the war that still stands in Vienna from before the war. Has anyone been there? It's, majest it's, it's, it's majestic. It's, it's unbelievable. It's a great synagogue, the Seitenschen Gassel in the first district. Um, but I want to point something out. Reform and Orthodox in Western Europe held radically different views, as I write here, on a big question, the divinity of the Torah and what rituals you have to keep. But they have a lot in common. Across Reform and Conservative Orthodox, they agree that the Jews' nation is wherever they happen to live, and you have to be patriotic to that nation. That's your nation. So they're all going to be anti-Zionist, of course, right? They believe that you should speak the local language. They believe that Kabbalah is a terrible thing, and the Hasidim are even worse. And they believe that, uh, the, you know, that you should be uh, uh, studying the Bible. They believe that you should be going to university. They believe in lots of similar approaches. Yes, they disagree about kosher and Shabbat. But outwardly, they have a lot in common. Take a look at these synagogues. You have, on the one hand, the Viennese Seiten Shetan Gasa, which is orthodox, and the left hand, you have the Berlin, Berlin Reform, right? These, they want a grandiose synagogue with this beautifully bourgeois and ornate. Everyone dresses up with decorum, with a sermon in the vernacular. The rabbi facing the congregation every week. That's new. Rabbis didn't used to do that. That was the preacher's job. But now the rabbi, rabbi had two sermons to give a year. 
two sermons a year. That was it. Before Yom Kippur and before Passover. That was it. No. Every week, an edifying sermon in the vernacular, and so on and so on. This didn't really work in Eastern Europe for a variety of reasons. None of this obtained in Eastern Europe. A generation, two, three later, when East European Jews start modernizing, things happen differently. You do see a little neo-Orthodox. I won't deny it. You do see it. But what you obtain instead is new kinds of Jewishness, of Judaisms. One of them is a form of ultra-Orthodoxy that we usually call political orthodoxy, manifest in groups like the Agudas Yisrael, which still exists to this day. But one of them is Zionism. And this is how you have to understand Zionisms, actually. They are denominations of Judaism. They are modes for Jews to understand, answer basic questions of what it means to be a Jew. What is a Jew? Who's a good Jew and who's a bad Jew? What does God expect of you? What's your future and past? What rituals are the most important and which are less important? That's what all Zionisms are, right? Even though it's a secular movement. Think about the symbols they choose. That's why they choose them. Look at this one, the flag. Why the Star of David? They thought it was Jewish. It actually doesn't go back as far as they thought it did, but it's, a star. it's, it's Jewish. Why the stripes? You know the answer. The Talis. Openly, right? That was why. The Star of David was metamegavorn. It was defiled. There was a story in the city of Sanz. It was a city so traditional that the most secular guy in the city didn't wear a fur hat on the Sabbath. He wore a regular black hat. That was like the friar, right? The Zionists come to town in 1900. They have a big party for Hanukkah, always Hanukkah. They have the, the flag. Rabbi gets behind the shtender, the, the lectern, and says, the Star of David is now uh, no longer a Jewish symbol. It's been defiled by the Zionists. Please, everyone, rip it off your tefillin bags. Take it off the Aaron Kodesh, the Ark. It's no longer Jewish, right? And he was right. He was wrong, but he was right. He was wrong in the sense that that was also Jewish, but he was right that it was a competing form of Jewishness, which he viewed as heresy, right? He viewed it as heresy. Um, the liturgy, next year in Jerusalem, that never meant literally get on a plane and go to Jerusalem. It meant Messiah, God, take us out of here, bring the Messiah. Now the Zionists say, I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, you, could get an, you could make Aliyah tomorrow. It seemed next year in Jerusalem, right? Um, rituals, the pushka. You guys have these blue pushka. I did when I was a kid. What was the point of it? It wasn't just the money. Now, I granted, my grandfather of blessed memory used to tell me, when someone says, it's not the money, it's the principle, it's the money, right? <laughs> and he's right, but it was not just the money. He gave me many such good pieces of advice. Um, there was a ritual of giving money to the Rebbe Meir Balhanes' uh, uh, support to help the Jews who were dying and learning in, in Jerusalem. They, want, they told women, give before you light Friday night candles. They would put plates out. The Hasidim had these plates on the day before Yom Kippur to collect charity. They would put a plate out for the Zionists. It wasn't just the money. It was elevating this to a religious act. That was the point, to make it a religious act to give to this cause. Um, holidays, Hanukkah, so important. Why Hanukkah? The candle shmandles. They couldn't wait to get rid of the candles. It was about the Maccabees. It was about military valor for the land, right? That's what they really wanted. Now, Messiah. You want to have a Messiah, right? They don't have a Messiah, but they do have a Messiah. Who do they have? Theodor Herzl. Take a look at this. Can you see it? Can you see the image? Yeah. On the right there is Theodor Herzl with his tuxedo and all the tucks and ladies and their nice upper middle class garb. It was, by the way, the first Zionist Congress black tie required. It was not optional. And on the left you have, on the, on the ground, all these sort of peasant-looking people in the cast of Ten Commandments. 
right, the extra calls. And in the sky, clearly Moses, what's he doing? Handing the staff to Theodor Herzl. This is not subtle, right? Herzl nourished this idea. I've often said, only half-jokingly, that if Theodor Herzl was clean-shaven, that might not be in Israel today. And I only said it half-jokingly, because he gave off this aura of messianess, right? Uh, And the religious Jews knew it. In the West, they all rejected Zionism because they said it's a heresy, because they said, we're German, we're English, right? They rejected. And in the East, they rejected it. It was secular, yes. Uh, And you were forbidden by Jewish law to go back to the land till God ordained it, yes. But above all, you've changed Jewishness. It's no longer based on the kind of Torah identity as we understand it. They would argue it is. Next year in Jerusalem, uh, you know, all these sorts of texts about Israel, the land, the book of Joshua, not the Shulchan Orach, that's useless, right? The book of Joshua is what we want. I won't read this quote because we're out of time, um, but I'll, I'll end with this quote here for a second. Who's the more assimilated? Asked the chief rabbi of, of, of Vienna. The nationally minded Jew who ignores the Sabbath or the observant Jew who feels himself to be a German? Who is the better Jew? And I'll tell you as a personal story, I probably shouldn't do this, I don't know you that well, but I'm going to share it anyway. I'm going to share it anyway, right? Uh, I have been, you know, I, I'm active on social media, and I get in, you know, I, you know get, it's, it's just kind of a wild, wild west out there, people give and take, you know, somehow behind the screen, get, get a little bit more, uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, a little more edgy. Um, but I have found people, because of my politics, people have said, uh, called me fake Jew or, or Jew in name only, so things like that, which is fine. It's part of the, part of the fun. Uh, but it's been done on Saturday mornings. And I didn't find it until Saturday night because I won't go on the computer until after Havdalah on Saturday night. So you see what's happened. On Saturday morning, someone posted that I'm not really a good Jew or I'm a bad Jew or I'm a fake Jew. That's fine. Like, it's all funny. It's a great story. But you see what's happened, right? That's part of the boundary marking here. That's part of what's, what's, what's happening here. And so Zionism is a series of denominations. Some of them you already knew, like the religious Zionist ideas that eventually evolved of Rabbi Cook or Moliver or others, right? The, the different kinds of explicit, but even the secular Zionists, right? These are modern ideologies that are appropriating pre-mod, picking and choosing symbols and texts and traditions to construct a worldview of, the key, you know, of what it means to be a good Jew. And that's what all the denominations are doing. And I guess I would conclude by just saying, if we recognize that all Judaisms today, Reform, Conserve, Orthodox, and all the many, ultra-Orthodox, Neo-Orthodox, the many forms of Zionism and others, that Reconstructionism and others as well, right? If we recognize that they're all, and, it's, and they literally are all attempting to claim authenticity. They really are. I remember when Ismar Shorsh, who was the former chancellor of JTS, came to my synagogue and he gave a lecture, and the literal title of the lecture was, How Do We Know Conservative Judaism is the Most Authentic Kind of Judaism? And it was the title of the lecture, uh, which is fine. Everyone thinks it. They don't always just say it out loud, right? Um, that's fine. So I think if we recognize that, and we recognize that, to quote Jean-Paul Sartre, there is no exit. We're stuck. You got to pick something, right? We all do the best we can. It seems to me that there's a conundrum that the German Orthodox that we have all faced today, that if we think we're right, whether it's not just Orthodox, what if reform is right? You Orthodox, you're twisting God's word. He doesn't want you to separate men and women. He doesn't want you to keep women from being rabbis. He doesn't want you to prevent gay marriage, whatever the issue is, right? If you think you're right, then the only two options are you're an idiot, you're, you're a child, or you're a heretic. That seems to be the options, right? But I think the key for me, and I'm an historian, it seems to be if you recognize that you're making the best attempt you can, 
but recognized historically it's new. You have a little bit of, uh, of I'll give you a Hasidic word, bitl. Bitl means a little humility. A sense that, you know what, I might be wrong. I'm not sure. I'm doing the best I can, and you're doing the best you can. And you're doing the best you can. We're trying to figure it out. And I'm choosing this thoughtfully. But I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I'm not, I don't think so, and that's why I'm going to live my life. I'm going to dive into my synagogue, and you're going to go to yours. But I, I, I might be. And if I have that sense of recognition of the modernity of my own path, it seems to me that we escape the conundrum of Etlinger and Hirsch, right? We escape the conundrum of either uh, infantilizing other Jews uh, or of, um, of, of calling them heretics. In other words, it, we are able to build that community, which is why I said the rabbi, come back to it. It seems to me that's the key. That This whole story, and of course I've only given you a taste of it, but it seems to me that if we recognize the modernity of these denominations, all of them, uh, including the Zionisms, which that also mixes, sometimes they mix together in interesting blends, that that's the way we escape that, that problem and, and build something that's bigger. Um, okay, so I think I'll stop there, and uh, it's 8.10, it's late. Are there any questions I can answer? Please. If you go back to Second Temple Judaism, and you talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and whatever, mm -hmm. and then you raise the question of what held them together did they think of themselves as a people, or did they think of themselves as separate peoples? And then you look at modern Judaism and the way it has uh, exploded into all of these various denominations, I think the question becomes even more critical, which is, fine, you have all of these things, what holds it together? Yeah, it's not clear to me. Uh, I'll tell you, I mean, if you think about the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, the first people they killed were the more culture, they were themselves Hellenized, but the more Hellenized who had gone too far, the enemies at home, right? So the civil war, it was a civil war that broke out in Jerusalem, and the, that's, that was, that's how the rabbis came to conclude that the sin of that age was sinat chinam, was, was hatred, right? So baseless hatred. Um, so it seemed to me that there was a lot of disunity back there. It wasn't just, disagree, it wasn't just polite disagreements. They weren't agreeing to disagree. It was far more than that. Uh, what holds Jews together today, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to believe that this is, the, for me, this is the approach. I think if you don't have this approach of humility, of the sense of your own correctness, and I really include nationalism in that for a reason, because I think that in some ways, not just Zionists, all nationalists are sort of the most fundamentalists of religions. You know what I mean? Like the most unwilling to admit that their worldview is not self-evident. So it seems to me that if you have a view that says we have a past, a sacred past together, this is an interesting past, and we hope to have a future together, and we have certain things we share, but certain things that we don't share, uh, and that's okay, it strikes me that that would be the path forward. Um, but that's difficult. I think that's a difficult thing to accept. Uh, but it seems to me that that's how you do it, for what it's worth, yeah. Does that seem kind of counter-directional to what we've seen the ultra-Orthodox going in the last? I think it's not just the ultra-Orthodox, it's sort of my point. I think it's everybody. Um, and I'm sure myself in many ways too, I'm not trying to say I'm above the fray, but I think that's everybody, right? I think it's the ultra-Orthodox saying we're the only real Jews, and you guys are maybe not even Jews, certainly your converts aren't Jews. Uh, I think it's the, the modern Orthodox. Uh, I think it's the Zionists of all stripes, right? Uh, they used to call, I don't know, they don't, I don't know if they, they don't really do this anymore, but 100 years ago they would call, anyone who wasn't a Zionist was a meatballel. It means an assimilationist. If you weren't a Zionist, you're an assimilationist. Like, there's nothing else, right? Um, I think it's the Reform who say, the, I, I was raised uh, in a world that said, um, 
you know, the Orthodox are crazy. They're just full of hate. You know, I hear all these stories about how they're all hateful. You know, there is a problem in all Jewish communities, you know, and lately I've been struggling with that. But these sorts of stereotypes, I think, are problematic. So, yes, I, I, I is, in a sense, counterintuitive. Uh, and I hope it doesn't come to a head. What, what came to a head 2,000 years ago was that they, they had a civil war and the Romans destroyed most of them. And the only ones that came through alive were, were the rabbinic Jews. And I hope it doesn't come to that. I, I mean, I, I've, I hear people welcoming that, right? Chamushim uh, Lubane Israel, you know that, that verse in the Bible? Uh, so it says the, the Jews left armed, probably is what it means, but it also could mean a fifth of the Jews left Egypt. And Rashi brings that 80% of the Jews stayed in Egypt, they just assimilated. And so you have people saying, now, well, don't worry about the reformed conservative, they're all just going to be the Chamushim Lubane Israel, they're going to assimilate, we don't have to worry about them. I'm not going to kill them, not like in the 2,000 years ago, but don't worry about them. So I, I, you know, I think it's the ultra-Orthodox in that extent, but I think it's everybody to, that, to a certain extent. It seems to me, again, I mean, my expertise is the history. You're asking me a personal question. This is how I view things in contemporary 2019. Yeah. <laughs> I've had it explained to me that the Jews before the 1500s, 1600s, it was important what you did, not so important what you thought. Whereas when it switched over to the modern, the Orthodox, it's important what you thought, less important what you did. That's interesting. Yeah, there's a great book. So first of all, it's true. Historically, Judaism tends to be a far more action-oriented religion than, rather than belief-oriented religion. Um, when you convert to Judaism, you don't accept, you accept the obligation. You say, I want to be part of the Jewish people. Uh, I accept, I'm going to do the mitzvot. You, and the, the, the minimum is give, give them a toughie and an easy one and say, yeah, I want to do them all, and mikvah, and if you're a man, circumcision. Um, Ra, uh, Rambam, the man of these, has the articles of faith because he was influenced by Islam, which had articles of faith. Uh, and there's been some great books that have shown that Rambam's attempt to impose dogma didn't really work for a variety of reasons. The best of these books that relates to your question is a guy, a guy named Menachem Kellner that says, must a Jew believe anything to be a good Jew? And he's writing as an Orthodox perspective, and the answer is he says, no. You're not required to believe anything. Now, um, Reformed Judaism will be most interested in belief because it's, if, if you're uh, having a minimalist approach to ritual, which they were especially 200 years ago, 150 years ago, belief becomes much more important. Catechism dogma becomes much more important. But it's not just Reform anymore, it's also Orthodox. Kellner's book was vilified by many people. Um, and I think that that's a part of the story as well. Uh, there is an attempt in the, la in the modern period to impose belief in a certain way that I would argue is, is a bit ahistorical to a certain extent. And there are litmus tests, litmus tests. And some of those beliefs are bizarre. Some of those litmus tests are almost political. For the Zionists, they're often political, right? Think about this for a moment. I run as a person whose daughter is probably about to make Aliyah, and I, I'm going to Israel in a month, but I'm just to throw it out at you. Imagine you walk into a synagogue, any synagogue, reform, conservative, modern orthodox, maybe Chabad, whatever, and you say, I am uh, not a religious Jew. I don't believe in God. I just had a ham and cheese at McDonald's. I know, it's Yom Kippur, I know, but I was hungry. Uh, and, um, you know, just make a litany of you know, I've, you know, I had 10 affairs, you know, in the last week, whatever. But I, I, I'd like to come to the synagogue and maybe um, pray with you. I think you'd be welcomed. You might even get an aliyah. 
Chabad for sure. <laughs> I don't know, right? You for sure get an aliyah, right? Um, imagine you come into a synagogue. I, it's very hard to imagine a synagogue that wouldn't at least welcome you to pray with them, right? Imagine that you walk in synagogue and say, I'm, I'm quite religious. Uh, I believe in God. I keep Shabbat very strictly and Kush very strictly. As it happens, I'm an anti-Zionist. Not, not even a non-Zionist. I'm an anti-Zionist. I think Israel's terrible and uh, whatever. Trikarta or not even Trikarta. It's like a modern left-wing person. I think a lot of synagogues would show you the door, right? That's a litmus test of belief, but it's a very interesting one because it's not about God or the Torah or, or, or Shulchan Aruch, right? It's something political, and I think that's interesting. I'm not even bemoaning it exactly. I'm just sort of find it interesting. Answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that though starting the, the relationship between, say, American and, and, and Jews and, and Israel? Isn't that kind of changing now? Though? It's constantly changing, and it's for sure changing now. Yeah, there's, if you, every other day it's like, it feels like there's a, a conference or a, new, or a newspaper articles or something about dealing with this. Yeah, my colleague, a, a person who I respect immensely, Huda Kurtzer, uh, at the head of the Sham Harbor Institute of North America, which is a terrific organization if you're looking, uh, also locally it's terrific, but if you're looking for a national one, I happen to love this organization a lot. They're obsessed with building peoplehood between, between America and Israel, and to challenge. It's for sure a challenge. I'm, I'm not a pessimist exactly, but I'm concerned and I keep an eye on these things. Um, you know, there's a famous essay by um, Rabinovich, who wrote, I think who wrote, I think uh, Sim Rabinovich, who wrote, um, the Jews are the ever dying people. Jews are constantly pessimistic that we're dying off. And somehow we're still here, right? I'll give you a story, I'll end with this. It's so late, I'm sorry to keep you so late, but I'll end with this. And if you wanna, if you wanna stay, I'll, I'm not going anywhere. David Berger, this gets back to your question as well. David Berger, great scholar, uh, important rabbi and scholar. Uh, he worked mostly on the disputations. That's how he became famous, you know, in the middle, late Middle Ages between Christian Jews were forced to have disputations, most famously in the Nachmanides in 1263. So um, he, for a few years, about 20 years ago, was uber-focused on Chabad messianism. He wrote a famous book about it. He was, he was preaching, literally preaching as an historian, but preaching everywhere he could go, this is a threat to Judaism, it's a threat to orthodoxy. You always say, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's not Jewish, whatever. It's not orthodox to believe the Rebbe has died and he's still the Messiah. That was his thing. So I was at a conference once uh, called Chabad B'Meir Srim, Chabad in the 20th century at Bar-Ilan University. It's about, this is about 19, uh, 2000, 2000 say. Chabad B'Meir Srim. David Berger was one of the speakers. First of all, he got up there and he began by chanting the messianic, the Chabad messianic chant, Long live our master, the King Messiah forever, which I thought was kind of funny. It was before the camcord, the, you know, the phones had cameras. I, I wish there was a video of it. But anyway, he gave his thing, this is dangerous, it's threatening, and so on. When he was done, um, uh, Moshe Idel, famous, famous scholar of Kabbalah, gets up, he did it in Hebrew. I don't remember the exact Hebrew word. I, 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 was, I sort of was translating it in my head as he spoke. He said, chill out, <laughs> relax. He said, if you're right, then, it, then it'll disappear and whatever. And if you're wrong, then we'll see. Like Judaism is whatever happens. You know, there's always these predictions that worry. You think you can control these things, you can't. Right? Just relax, do your thing. And I, I have to tell you, and he's not a religious man. He's, of course, brilliant. I don't know, actually, I don't know, how many, I don't know if his religion is hard. He's not orthodox, uh, but he's brilliant. And I, and I appreciated that thought. You know, have a good attitude, do your... Be, be an active Jew, but don't think that you're in charge. And he wasn't even saying God's in charge. He was just saying history's in charge. 
If you're right, you're right, and if you're wrong, it'll show up. When it comes to American and Israel, I'm not saying it shouldn't be nurtured, I'm not saying it's important. I try to nurture it in my family, my friends, my students, but beyond that, uh, we'll see, you know, I'm, I, I try not to be too overly worried about that relationship. I think American Judaism's got a long future, that's for sure. Uh, and I hope it involves Israel, because that's such an important experiment in Judaism. Um, thank you all for staying so late. This came from a terrific source reader, which all of it was a trick of the trade for teachers of Jewish history. It's called The Jew in the Modern World. I think they're up to the third, this is in the second edition. I think they're up to a third or a fourth edition by now by uh, Paul Mendes Floor and Yehuda Reinhardt. Uh, and it's a thick reader of important texts on modern Jewish history, of course, in English translation with footnotes. And it's a terrific resource. Uh, you can, if you're willing to get the penultimate edition, meaning the one that just got you know, no longer used, you'll find it very cheaply on Amazon because the students can't use it anymore. <laughs> so if you're willing to sacrifice that, that much, you'll get it for a few bucks. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you all. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.